Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trinway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trinwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trinway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trinway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. You're ready to start a new project, but don't have the right yarn. Or you have the yarn, but not the right tool. Yarn Barn of Kansas can help. They stock a wide range of materials and equipment for knitting, weaving, spinning, and crochet. They ship all over the country, usually within one or two days of receiving the order. Plan your project this week and start working on it next week. Visit yarnbarn-ks.com to get started. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Ann Marrow. Justin, thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to uh, be able to have this chat. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is the Burroughs Garrett. That's where I find you online. And can you tell me what that means and what it means to you? <laughs> well... Sure. Uh, I'd love to. When I first started my own business here in 2017, I had just moved the year before into this house, which was built in the early 19th century by the Burroughs family. And up in the upstairs, which they would have known as the Garrett, there was still weaving equipment, uh, textile equipment from when they lived here. Parts of broken spinning wheels and, uh, and the loom, in fact, here. So as I started my own business, I wanted to have something that sort of referenced that. I'm very interested in the way that the work that I do ties into the place. And I was also just trying to come up with a business name that didn't have weaver or textiles in it because I felt like there were a lot of those. And I wanted something different. So how did you come to have a weaving or textile business? That's a somewhat unusual thing to do in this day and age. Yeah, it's surprising that it's possible to make a living doing something that's been obsolete for you know 150 years at least. But it really started with my grandmother. She was a spinner, weaver, and dyer. So growing up, any time we spent any time together, she always had some sort of textile thing happening. And so she taught me how to spin when I was a kid, and uh, I got interested in looms. I thought the mechanics of them were really fascinating and got a loom that I still use today by the time I was a teenager. And so I was weaving a little bit on my own, and then I went and worked in museums and worked at one that laid off most of my department every winter because the museum was seasonal and we were closed. And so during those winter layoffs, I had the really great fortune to meet Kate Smith and Norman Kennedy of the Marshfield School of Weaving. And I spent a couple of winters learning from the two of them. And then went off and had year-round museum work for a while. But uh, in 2013, I came back to weaving and worked for Kate Smith at uh, the weaving school and also her textile business called Eaton Hill Textile Works. And uh, was doing that. And then when I moved in 2016 out here to Newbury in this place, decided at that point to start my own business. So it all was very organic and not at all planned. If somebody was looking to try to get into this, I don't know how you do it deliberately. Uh, it kind of fell into my lap. <laughs> so when you said you were working in museums, were those, you know, sort of living history museums, were they textile museums that you were working in? Uh, they were living history museums. So historic environments, you know, wearing a costume, doing oldie tiny things. 
<laughs> and, you know, you talk about being inspired by a sense of place. And you did sort of mention Vermont. Is there something particular about the New England, the the sort of mountain New England that speaks to you? Um, that is a great question. I I think so. The The particular area where I have ended up is one that feels in some ways like the land that I forgot a little bit. People, a lot of people at least, still do the sorts of things that I was doing at those museums. It's very typical for people to grow some or all of their own food here and to heat with wood stoves. And so that kind of connection to the land and the environment is something that is very present that attracted me to the work that I did in museums. And so the fact that that's just sort of a, a part of everyday life around here for a lot of folks is very appealing. And so I think that definitely influences what I do for work, sort of seeps its way into the work that I make. Some of the things that I've seen you work on on your, on your website and Instagram are, you said obsolete, but they were in some ways very vital and in some ways almost cutting edge technology when they were created in the same time period as your house. You have some fairly complex looms. Can you tell me about those? Uh, yeah, so I've got one loom, kind of my, my pride and joy. So the loom of which I'm the most proud and really just infatuated with is a a loom that is composed of several historic parts. So the loom itself that it's, uh, forms the base of it is a hand loom that was made in Connecticut, probably in the second quarter of the 18th century and survived there with all of its early accessory equipment, which is pretty amazing. So it still had all of its old gear. Uh, that's the heddles and the reeds with warps still drawn into them, ready to to be tied on. Shuttles, uh, temples, spools, uh, all of that still survived with this loom. But the thing that makes it really unique is the jacquard machine that's on top of it, which was probably built in Northern Ireland in the 1850s or 60s, and it was built specifically for the linen damask industry. And so it was used there, um, so far as I can tell, until the early 20th century when it was relocated to Scotland. It was used there for weaving linen damask into the, the latter 20th century until it was purchased by a gentleman here in the United States who brought it over in the late 90s. And he had it set up for weaving coverlets with, initially, uh, figured coverlets. So a very sort of unique and American textile form. And I had been fascinated with linen damask for decades. I just think it's one of the most beautiful textiles there is and deeply interested in the way that it's made. And so uh, the more that I learned about that and the more that I learned about the technology that was used for it, the more I really wanted to find a jacquard machine that could work in tandem with a front mounting, the way that a draw loom works to, to weave this damask. And again, through just sort of happenstance and networking and having the right conversations with the right people, I found out about this this gentleman who had that loom and was looking to rehome it and what they went to the next and it came to Vermont. So I'd used it for weaving coverlets the way that the previous owner had done for the first couple of years that I had it to get a, a feel for the technology and how it worked. And all the while had been planning how to convert it uh, and restore it back to weaving figured damask. So it's sort of a funny combination. It's this British piece of technology sitting on top of this American loom that just so happens to basically meet all the criteria of what the jacquard on top of it needs to function correctly. So yeah, so that's that loom. Wow. And you've been working on restoring it and making it work and working on little parts of it that I had never even heard of before. These little coin shaped, I don't even know what they're called. They look like little figure eights. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Uh, those are called males. 
Males is the English word for them. They come from a French root that gave us the same, that means a ring, basically. So it's the same word that gave us like chain mail. And so the males are the little, essentially the, the heddle equivalent that the jacquard controls. The way that this loom is set up is probably different than the way a lot of folks who hear the word jacquard assume that it operates. So most people today, when they hear about jacquard looms, they assume that those are set up in a specific type of harness, and that's referred to as full harness work. And so with the full harness jacquard loom, the jacquard controls all of the shedding. So it's going to pick up um, whatever's creating the top of the shed and whatever's going to be the bottom just stays sunk and the shuttle goes through that opening. The machine that Joseph Marie Jacquard actually invented was not intended to do that. It was intended to replace the draw boys who worked the draw harness of a draw loom. And so the draw loom is going to work with at least two separate devices to create the actual shed that the shuttle is going to pass through. And when that machine was first invented, it just took the place of the rear figure harness. And that persisted in certain industries, uh, including the hand loom linen damask industry in certainly in Britain into the 20th century. Whereas in a lot of other branches of the textile industry, it was superseded by the full harness system. So in talking about the males, they are pretty specifically controlling a group of warp ends. And the number of them is determined by a huge number of factors. But generally speaking, it's going to be more than one thread. And then the threads that are in the males are then individually controlled in separate heddles that are mounted on a shaft mounting that sits in front, which creates the weave structure. And are these all things that could be done by a contemporary, say, CompuDobby loom? Um, I mean, a CompuDobby loom couldn't weave quite the type of figured work that I'm doing. Uh, you would need... So the jacquard that I'm working with has 500 hooks. So each one of those hooks creates essentially like a pixel of the figure of the cloth. But that pixel, in the case of what I'm weaving, contains four warp ends and four weft ends. So you would need four shafts times 500 hooks on your copy dobby to weave the same wow. designs that I'm weaving. This is the advantage of having the front mounting in front of the jacquard machine. It allows me to basically multiply the power of the jacquard um, across warp ends. So in theory, though, with something like a TC2, you could weave similar types of fabrics, but I don't know that that tool is really equipped to handle the kind of warp yarn that I'm using, the kind of weft yarn that I'm using, um, and to create the same sort of density of cloth. I haven't worked with one directly, so I can't speak to that um, with any kind of uh, experience, but all the components that are united in the, the loom um, that I'm using to make this lead and damask evolved there over the course of centuries for a very specific purpose. And that's something that really fascinates me in thinking about the way that different branches of the textile trade really created very specific technology for a very specialized kind of cloth. And learning more about the, the subtleties and the nuances of what made those tools work, I find fascinating. I'm I'm a process guy. First and foremost, the textiles are kind of gravy. They're, they're sort of the byproduct of, of the process for me in many ways. And I'm just totally fascinated with the looms themselves and the technology. That reminds me of conversations I've had with Norman Kennedy about how those old folks were smart. And we have this idea that sometimes we, we think about how knowledge is grown and over time, we just know more than people used to know. But when you're speaking about the complexity of textiles that were created on your loom, it's not that there's some contemporary tool that is just better. It's what you do is harder, but it's not inferior. Right. Yeah. It, I like to think, you know, we talk about accumulating knowledge. It feels to me much more like 
this idea of progress, I think we have this mistaken approach or, or thought that we're just, again, accumulating more and more. And I think what we're actually doing is just updating the operating system. And once you've done that enough times, you don't have the ability to put your floppy disk. I mean, I don't even have the ability to put a, a CD into the laptop that I am talking <laughs> right. from right now. Right. So I have like a whole box full of information that I can't access right now. And at the moment, it doesn't feel like I've lost anything because I don't remember what's on the disks. And pretty soon I'm going to never know what was there. And with, especially with textiles, which, you know, thinking about that topic, I mean, there's just really an endless uh, amount of information that one could develop and learn. There's an awful lot that we don't know. We don't know. And so one of the things that I'm also drawn to sort of in thinking about process is the way that textiles were being made by hand, especially getting up to, but you know, the early 19th century, just, just as the power loom started to come in and replace hand weaving, uh, because we're sort of looking at the apex of millennia of human ingenuity and thought and development that just disappeared in so many ways, just due to both changes in technology, but also changes in market and the value of cloth. So the kind of linen damask that I weave, you really, you would be hard pressed to find a power loom that could weave the equivalent goods because of the fineness of the thread and the way that I can pack it in and the things that you can do by hand that machines just really can't, or certainly can't economically. And there's just no market for it really. And so of course there's no demand for hand weavers to make it anymore in the way that there had been in the early 20th century for a long time. So that's, I guess, another thing that I spend an awful lot of time thinking about as I'm, as I'm working is the ways in which we preserve skill and craft. And how do we do that when the skill and the craft develops to produce a product that's no longer sought after or has no real value anymore? What other ways can be used to preserve those skills and knowledge? I remember being told in American history class when I was in junior high school that in the early 19th century, 18th century, goods were expensive and labor was cheap. And now it's the opposite. Goods are cheap and labor is expensive. Labor, at least here. And so the real luxury is not only having a special thing, but the care and attention that a skilled person puts into it is the sign of something being special and, and valuable. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as somebody who is making a living against all sorts of odds, uh, doing this kind of work today. I think it's really key is to be able to share as much of that process as possible because that's where the value is. If you're to buy my cloth versus cloth that comes off a power loom, you know, I, I think that my stuff is good and, and different in a way that makes it worth what it's worth. But such a huge part of it is the way that it got made and the way that we support this kind of craft through purchasing what it produces. So part of what you're talking about is your textile business and, and creating a, a luxury handmade good. But another element of what you're doing in terms of sharing is your work with the Marshfield School of Weaving. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody who does not know, the Marshfield School of Weaving was founded in 1975 by Norman Kennedy, who grew up in Aberdeen, Scotland in the 1930s and 40s, just soaked up all sorts of traditional skills, like a sponge. And uh, when he relocated to the U.S. in the 1960s, really began this incredible life of disseminating all of that uh, that he, he picked up. And so the uh, weaving school, as I say, was founded in the mid-70s, operated up until 1992 when it closed for a period. Norman 
has taught many, many students, but Kate Smith is the one who uh, stuck around right there in Marshfield. She started her own textile business and then reopened the school in 2007. And that was right around the time that I got to meet both Kate and Norman. And though I was weaving before that, I learned very quickly that I had no idea what I was doing until, uh, before <laughs> before meeting them. Uh, yeah. And so I had the real, real gift of being able to absorb as much as I could from them. And as I say, sort of returned and, and started working for Kate, started my own business, and then wasn't teaching very much at that point. The weaving school then was on hiatus for um, a year in 2020, as most of the world also was. And when we started programs again in 2021, I came back on on board at that point and um, have been teaching ever since and loving it. it. It's an incredible place with an incredible legacy. And really, I might be a little biased here, but I think it's one of the only places where you can learn um, hand weaving technique as it was practiced before the 20th century. And so hand weaving was dramatically kind of reinvented in the 20th century through the arts and crafts movement. And that is good and great and, and, and nothing against it, but it's a very different thing than the way that cloth was being woven before that period. And as somebody who is deeply interested in process and deeply interested in efficient ways of producing high quality cloth, I'm deeply interested in the ways in which that, that was done then. And the more that we uncover and learn about that, the more that we share with students. Importantly, you know, we're not reenacting anything at the Marshfield School of Weaving. We're not recreating this as historic methods because we're trying to go back in time, but rather because they were and are, as I've said before, this culmination of just hundreds and hundreds of years of people thinking about how to make cloth by hand. And I think you would be hard pressed to find a better way of doing it if I have an idea of a way to do something, somebody else has already thought of it. And there's probably a reason why <laughs> it didn't survive in the, uh, in the tradition, because, you know, a lot of the chaff got winnowed away a long, long time ago. So I'm really interested in helping people kind of reconnect with that tradition, not to recreate it, but just to be a part of it and to apply those skills and methods to whatever kind of work they are interested in creating today. I recently read that Kate has transitioned her role at the School of Weaving and that you are the director. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Kate just started a very well-deserved retirement now. So she's she's not going anywhere. She's still around and uh, shares her love of weaving yep. through her own enterprises. But yes, we are taking up the torch, as it were. And uh, we have a fantastic board of directors. The Weaving School is a nonprofit now. And we have just a really great team, everyone's uh, incredibly dedicated and supportive. And of course, maybe slightly terrifying time, but also one that's extremely exciting as we embark on this uh, <laughs> this next chapter. For somebody who's interested in process, the way that the Marshfield School of Weaving approaches things, I would think would be particularly exciting because it's not just the weaving process. It's not like you go into a room and all the looms are the same. There have been classes throughout the years on growing the fiber and every step of the process through spinning, weaving, finishing, dyeing. So it's kind of a holistic approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Holistic approach. And also one that's really based on... So my primary goal with all the teaching that I do is to help people better understand uh, principle to then apply that to their own tools at home. All the looms that we use at the weaving school are from the 18th and 19th centuries. They're all unique. They were all handcrafted. Uh, each one is different from the next one in, in some way. 
And so by understanding the principle, we can then demonstrate on those tools, all the different ways that you might need to physically accomplish that goal. And I hope that that helps people to be able to translate that to their own tools and to kind of free people from feeling like they're limited by the equipment they have in front of them. So often that equipment can do more than we know it can do. So that's, that's another thing that, that gets me excited. Many of the folks that you're teaching, either they're going home to a more contemporary loom, which is set up with certain expectations, or they're going home to another, I suppose, not, how many people are going home to handmade looms? Very many? Yeah, I think you might be surprised. It's certainly after they come to us. Really? <laughs> we certainly have been known to, uh, <laughs> to pack them up in the back of somebody's car uh, on the way home. We do. From time to time, we'll have looms for sale. I would say the, the the majority of people are going home to more contemporary equipment, for sure. But hopefully with a, a broader understanding of the possibilities that that equipment might hold. And I should say that when I was growing up, my dad had, I think he had something like a, a production sample loom and also a barn loom. And I'm not sure the barn loom was ever fully put back together. And so part of what you're teaching people if they're going home to an antique loom is that it, the way they might be doing is going home to an antique pile of wood with maybe some notches and markings on it and understanding the principles of how it's supposed to work and how to put it together. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Once you, once you sit at one and you know what all the parts are supposed to do, I think, well, I, I hope it becomes a lot more clear when you're staring at that pile of lumber uh, on the floor of the garage or wherever it is and start to identify the various pieces. You know, the beauty of those looms is in their simplicity. It's why they still survive. The more specialized looms didn't generally. So there used to be in this country, a vast array of technology that produced very complicated textiles. And when the market demand for those fell, those are the first looms to go because you couldn't do anything else with them. So the simpler ones are the ones that you could weave fairly complex textiles on. Uh, but because the shedding mechanisms and the, the sort of guts of the loom are all very perishable, just sticks and strings, they could be replaced with simpler shedding systems and whatnot. And so, you know, these looms that maybe wove fairly intricate things in their early years, kept blowing, weaving rag rugs in the 19-teens and 20s. And they're still around today, just waiting for you to do whatever you like. You know, if you can find a jacquard head, slap it on. Works just fine. I was lucky enough to visit the Henry Ford Museum and, and see their jacquard head. One of the things I learned is that it's not just that you need the jacquard part. You need the part that makes the cards. Yes. <laughs> Those, that can be... A very simple piece of technology if you want to dedicate a huge amount of time and brain space, or it can be a more complicated device if you want to dedicate a little bit less time, probably just as much brain power, but it goes a little faster. I was very fortunate that when the previous owner of my Jacquard, when he bought that from the guy in Scotland, he also purchased at the same time what's called a piano punch or piano cutter, mm -hmm. which is a specialized tool for making the punch cards. And that piece of equipment, that's, I don't know, three or four times bigger than the Jacquard head itself. It's this huge um, industrial piece of equipment from the 1880s that has to sit in very strategic parts of my house because it's so heavy <laughs> go through the floor. But that tool, yeah, then allows you to create cards themselves. And it's been tons of fun, you know, certainly a steep learning curve, but there's really nothing like handing the tool in front of you to, to finally learn and figure out, you know, how all these, these things work. We're hoping to be able to incorporate that also into our classes at Marshfields. We currently do a field trip to my workspace in Newberry as part of the mechanics class that uh, that I teach. 
to look at the cards and students get a chance to punch some cards, but we're working on also getting that kind of equipment at Marshfield itself so that we can have that in house. I don't know if really many other places in this country do that. I'm not sure that there is one that has manual punch card operated jacquard machines to uh, to leave on. And one of the elements of Marshfield that I think is really important is that it's a living school and a nonprofit, but it's also a history repository. Do I am I right that when the American Textile Museum closed down, Marshfield received some of the equipment that they'd held in their sort of treasury? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. When the um, American Textile History Museum closed, we uh, received a, a large portion of mostly the wooden tool collection, uh, as how it was designated there, as well as a few textiles and mostly items that were designated as usable in their collection. These were tools that were, generally speaking, not the rarest of the rare or the most exceptional things that they had in their collection, but they were things that were often still in working order. And so students who come to the school today can actually use a large number of the items that were received as part of that collection. We do also have a separate, smaller, uh, really like study collection of, of items that are not really in a condition to be used, but available to study. We're also always on the lookout for items that might be nice additions to that collection. So if anybody's listening and you've got some old stuff that you think we might want, send us an email. And I love the fact that things sometimes rotate through. So you acquire, but you also divest. You also send people home with new treasures. And is there a sale? That has happened in the past. I don't think we have anything that came from the museum that will be deaccessioned, but we do frequently get donations of looms or spinning wheels or other textile equipment that is either a duplicate of something we've already got or in some way doesn't quite fit our needs. Uh, we do have extremely limited space. So as much as I would love to just hoard them all and stockpile them forever, it's not really practical. And so those sorts of tools sort of stay with us for just a short period of time while we rehome them, like a little adoption agency, really, for, uh, for antique tools. Yes. <laughs> One of the best ways to preserve these items really for the future, too, is just through use. In some ways, you know, a respectful, careful use of them makes them relevant and valuable and worth keeping around. It's, you know, the things that become redundant and people don't find useful anymore. Those are the things at greatest risk of, of loss. So when we can, we are certainly happy to see these things in good homes. So speaking of good homes and back to your garret, do you actually use any of the textile tools that were up in the garret when you moved in? So I used to use the warping bars that were up there in, uh, in the garret of my house when I moved in. The Spinning equipment was all broken up, so it was parts of spinning wheels, but there wasn't anything that was still intact anymore. And the loom that was there it was missing some parts. I think it got pilfered in the 20th century for whatever little building project happened at the time. And so I'd say it's probably like 80% of the loom <laughs> could be could be completed if I had some time to do it. But uh, so I use a little bit of the equipment that was here, but it's all around the workspace still. So. Hopefully it, it feels at home and not replaced too much. And am I right that you also have fiber animals? I do. Yep. We've got a small flock of Border Lester sheep. They uh, soon should be useful. Uh, I've been stockpiling the wool in order to meet the minimums for green spinnery. And I made the mistake of having read their requirement sheet and then getting busy and forgetting what that minimum was. And I had in my head that it would weigh higher than Bachelor is. 
So I uh, exceeded that threshold probably oh. a couple shearings ago and have been saving up all this wool uh, ever since. But uh, as soon as I get the last of it skirted, I will send that down to them and um, get some yarn and some roving back, I hope, from those very sheep. So you mentioned your passion for this linen damask. Are you using other kinds of fiber as well? When I worked with Norman, he he was doing something with linen and cotton, but we did a video on from wool to walking, which is, you know, all about starting with spinning the fiber, spinning the wool and up through fulling and finishing. Yes. Uh, yep. Do you do wool as, as well as cellulose or as well as bast? Uh, I do. Yep, I do. Most of what I weave tends to be wool or linen. I don't have anything against other natural fibers. That just seems to be uh, what the orders are for most of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, certainly yep, I do work with wool. Uh, I'm actually just wrapping up a project that has been by far the longest commission I've ever worked on uh, with my apologies to the client. I was approached by a guy who is really interested in clothing and garments and really wanted to find out what it would take to create a suit here in New England entirely. And so uh, he reached out and we started this great project. Green Mountain Spinnery sourced wool from a Vermont farm, spun it into a really beautiful, fine singles yarn to our specs. And my client went out and he was living in Cambridge at the time. And he, I don't know if he had it on a Google map or something, but he basically plotted out every black walnut tree in the greater Boston area that he could find. And Come September, oh gosh. <laughs> had a whole round. He would go around up and gather up what had fallen and uh, stored them in the freezer until he had the quantity we needed. And then he brought those up to me and I dyed the wool using those black walnuts and then madder root that was grown by Kate Smith in Marshfield and uh, Michelle Parrish down in Western Massachusetts. And so we got this really beautiful, several shades of brown and beautiful madder red and took that and have woven that up now into uh, yardage for several suits, actually. So there's quite a lot of it, fabric. And just as soon as I can get it scheduled, we will walk that cloth, uh, just like in that wool-to-walking uh, video that you did with Norman, and uh, then send that off to his tailor. So I do certainly work with wool. I've got some singles cotton to go on the loom soon for museum clients. I would say that, that linen has kind of become a specialty of mine. I've worked with linen since I started weaving, mostly because everybody said it was hard and I was determined that it couldn't be that hard. And so really kind of made a little niche for myself working with that particular fiber. I'm seeing a bit of a linen revival, but it tends to be a sort of more of a flax revival. And I'm still interested in finding more places where people are using, because it, it's sort of, it, it's flax until it becomes yarn and then it's linen. Is that right? Do I have that right? Uh, that's that's how I understand it. Uh, as far as, yeah, there's, there are a lot of folks growing it. We, unfortunately, since I think the 1960s or so, have not had industrial bass fiber spinning equipment in North America. And we used to. I mean, this is within living memory and relatively recently that industry collapsed and the tools to my understanding are long gone. So we've got small scale equipment that's been developed by Taproot Fiber Lab in Nova Scotia and the folks in uh, Oregon and I'm sure lots of other projects that I am not as aware of. My apologies to anybody out there who's listening, who's been working on this that I'm, that I'm not pulling to mind at the moment, but producing fiber seems to be viable. It's 
turning that into a usable yarn that is the big bottleneck right now. And so I know a lot of folks have been have been putting a lot of energy into trying to rectify that situation. And I'm extremely excited for the time when we have nice, fine, wet spun line linen yarn being produced here again. Mm. I'll buy up whatever anybody's got. <laughs> so let me know. So it sounds to me like you really kind of have one foot in the technology of two centuries because you're working on the technology of historic textiles, but we are having this conversation over, you know, a digital Wi-Fi connection and your client is using Google Maps to find walnuts. So how do you bring those two things together? It feels very natural, I guess. I did the museum thing. Kind of, you know, got my fill of mm-hmm. that for sure. I continue to do the sorts of things that I was doing in those museums that I find appealing in my daily life. You know, this kind of gets to the the broader question of the ways in which the world is changing and has changed that has lent itself quite well, kind of by accident, to my own interest because I'm so interested in process. Were it not for the internet, I don't know how I would really find a way to make a living because if I was just bringing you know, linen damask napkins to my local craft show or something. I don't think anybody would buy them because they can't see the loom that they're being made on <laughs> and what goes into that whole process. They really have no value. They don't mean anything at all. Right. And so, so much of it has been about finding ways in which our modern technology can help to support these skills that I find so interesting. And I am, I am hardly an expert at that. And Certainly within the last couple of months, I have been feeling older and older very suddenly and very quickly in terms of technology, (laughs) which is a weird place to be for sure. But yeah, I guess it's felt quite natural. And I guess part of it too is again, kind of getting to this idea that we talked about in reference to the weaving school that I'm not here to reenact anything. I think that the types of skills that I am interested in, in practicing are ones that are worthy of continuing to practice, that they inherently have value in and of themselves. And, and the real trick is just figuring out how to assign monetary value to that because one has to pay the bills. Right. But yeah, but I, I think we should have a whole little linen damask industry. If we just had more looms, mm-hmm. we could pull it off. Something I remember reading once was that the older information storage actually lasts a lot longer and the mechanisms for extracting information from it are a lot more stable. Whereas something that's even 10 years old It's hard for you to get your information off a CD or a floppy drive, but furthermore, they degrade. Whereas the old newsprint, especially the old newsprint with all kinds of (laughs) chemicals we wouldn't currently use, they're totally stable. You can pull information off a wax cylinder. So what's new might actually be more ephemeral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the vast quantity of it too, even if if you could keep all the stuff in the last 10 years around and keep that stable, I I don't know how you got to sort through it. But maybe that's just me starting to become an old fogey already. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, and that, so the two storage devices that I think about the most in thinking about what I'm doing, one is early print and, you know, starting in the, just, mm-hmm. you know, the opening years of the 19th century, there's this kind of explosion of books related to weaving in the English language, at least. And those books really give us the opportunity to capture a moment in time in terms of practice and process, which just as a little plug for the the weaving school, we have a class this year that is going to be recreating weaving techniques before 1850. So, so not just traditional, but very specifically the way it was being done 
the real nuts and bolts of that. But so those reading books give us a huge amount of insight, but then they, you know, themselves are sort of the newer of these two old storage systems. The older one being the hand and the mind and mm. the transfer of skill and knowledge and information directly from person to person. And that's one thing that I think is very unique and powerful about the Marshfield School of Weaving is that unlike a lot of other places you could learn to weave, Norman was taught directly by folks who were taught directly by people who were taught directly in this lineage that goes back to the Middle Ages when the horizontal loom came into Britain. And his teaching of Kate directly one-on-one and her teaching of myself and the other guests that we bring in as visiting instructors, that then continues with each one of the students to come to their classes. They're getting this direct hand-to-hand person-to-person connection to this thousand-year-old textile-making yeah. tradition that is, um, for me at least, it's a very powerful experience. I, I guess I can't speak for all of the students who come through. Maybe nobody else cares, but I think it's a really meaningful thing. It's, it's so much more than just learning how to weave. It's it's being part of this thing that we've been doing as humans for, for such a long time. I love that way of thinking about it, of, about hands and minds as being storage devices. I've never heard of that before and I love it. Yeah, you know, there's there's so much stuff that you can't capture any other way that hands do. And even if you could, you're not capturing the thing. So you can write about it mm-hmm. and you can make a video of it. Right. But those are just, at the end of the day, it's a video, which is just a moving image and sound, or you've got written text. It's not the actual act. You know, it's the way that music doesn't exist as notes on a page. It only exists when the symphony plays it or when someone sings it, or, you know, a dance is only a dance when someone's one's doing it. So yeah, hands, the final frontier, the last frontier, something, I don't know. The floppy <laughs> disk that never gets old. The, the ultimate. <laughs> we need to workshop it. There's there's something there. I haven't quite got it all worked out. So what are you excited about that's coming up for the School of Weaving? This will be your first full year in your new role. What kind of things are you looking forward to? Oh my gosh. I mean, the the easier question is just like, what am I not excited about? Because uh, everything is so exciting. We are continuing with a lot of the programs that we've been doing. Our regular classes, like our foundation class, it's kind of our intro, our kind of welcome to Marshfield class. So that's, that's still happening. In the last couple of years, we've revitalized or started up again what we're calling Fleece to Fulling, which is essentially a one-month-long version of your Wool to Walking DVD that you did with Norman. And in that class, students come for a month and hand spin and then hand weave a blanket start to finish. So that's a very exciting wow. class. That's very much the way that Norman used to teach in the 1970s and 80s. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks would come for six weeks and make a blanket start to finish. This year, I'm excited we're shifting the format a little bit, and that class is actually going to start off at a farm just a few miles away on shearing day. So folks will get a chance to learn directly from the shearer and the shepherd what goes into having sheep and getting wool off of sheep. And we'll get to skirt fleeces right there at the farm and then take those fleeces back to the school, mm-hmm. and that will be the wool that we process for the weft. And then they'll use carded roving from Green Mountain uh, Spinnery to be their warps, and so... So I'm excited about that and deepening that connection directly. You can't meet your blanket on the hoof many other places. So that'll be a, a real <laughs> um, mm-hmm. great addition to that. Uh, and then we've got so far eight brand new programs that we're bringing in at the meeting school this coming year. So some of those are focused on specific types of cloth or uh, a specific technique. We've got a fantastic class um, lined up being taught by Ann Lau and Perry Lewis, who are two Marshfield alum who also have 
weaving and artistic practices all on their own. And they're going to teach a class on supplemental warps and ways of doing that mm -hmm. on whatever loom you've got. And so those will involve both supplemental warps that weave little figures on top of the ground fabric, but also pile weaves we're going to explore in that class. So that's going to be a ton of fun. As I said earlier, we've got this weaving practice before 1850 class coming up. Double cough. What else is new? A whole bunch of things that I'm not remembering right now, but they're all on the programs page of our website. Wonderful. You can find that at marshfieldschoolofweaving.org. Please check it out. And just coming back to your Garrett, what are you excited about working on in your own practice or your own business now? Oh my gosh. Well, when I get a chance to take a little break from all of the behind the scenes stuff that is happening over at the weaving school and the farm stuff that's happening outside uh, around here, I mm -hmm. am very much looking forward to working more with that linen damage card. It's only been converted for about a year now, and uh, I haven't yet had the time to punch cards specifically for this new configuration. So I've been weaving on it using cards that were punched for bleeding coverlets, and I've got a recreation of an early 17th century Dutch linen damask napkin that has been in the works now that I've had time to, to, to pick away at it, and I'm really looking forward to getting that done and getting that operational and getting a chance to really get to know that loom. You know, it's been 20 years of wanting it and very little time of actually getting to use it. So hoping to, to carve out some more time for that. Wow, that's so exciting. Well, I'm really excited to follow you on your adventures on your website and on the Marshfield website. And uh, yeah, just looking forward to seeing what exciting new and old discoveries you play with. Thanks. I'm looking forward to a great year ahead at the Weaving School. Um, we've got some great stuff lined up, and I really am looking forward to meeting all of the students who, uh, who come on through. Thanks to our sponsors for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.